Well, today is a special treat because we have some important announcements to make. So, uh, Ms. Kimberly Myers, come on up here. And listen, if you're in the first through sixth grade, you're invited onto the stage right now. This is your moment, okay? So first through sixth graders, come on up. You guys are going to come up here on stage. We have some very willing participants, others a little more begrudgingly. But y'all come on up here. We're all going to join together up here. Y'all come stand on this carpet up here. And y'all can all kind of face the stage for, you know, face the audience for a minute. Y'all come on up, our first through sixth graders. This has been a really special time. All right, Miss Kimberly, will you come on over here? And Miss Felicia, if you'll come over here and join me. And if you guys will kind of part the seas just a little bit, we're going to get right here in between you guys. Miss Kaylee, Mr. Joshua, let's see if we can get right up here. And what we have today is a moment of appreciation because as you guys know, as a church family, we've gone through a season of transition. We said goodbye to Miss Faith Scott, who had been here at our church for over 10 years serving faithfully. And we needed someone to be able to step in during that interim period while we prayed and we looked and we waited for God's provision for the next children's, um, the children's ministry director for First Baptist New Orleans. And God provided the exact person that we needed for that season, and that was Miss Kimberly Myers. And so, Kimberly, we are so grateful to you, and we have a gift for you and for Gary and Jonathan, hopefully, to be able to enjoy a wonderful dinner and also a gift of flowers to say thank you. And so, kids, I want you guys to join me on three in saying thank you to Miss Kimberly, okay? One, two, three. Thank you, Miss Kimberly. Thank you so much. And this is Miss Felicia Pore, who serves as our chair of our personnel committee. And so I've asked her up here to, to help me also to show appreciation, but also to do an introduction today. And that is to Miss Nico Bandy, who is going to be joining our staff team as our children's ministry director. And so Felicia has been part of this committee as well, of uh, being able to help share and to get to know Nico. And so kids, you, a lot of you guys got to meet Miss Nico yesterday um, as we had our Breakfast in Bethlehem event, which we're so thankful for Miss Rochelle um, and her leadership in putting that together. And so I wanted you guys to meet Miss Nico, but I have another gift today. And this gift is from you guys to Miss Nico. Okay, so do you guys want to see her open this gift before she talks for just a little bit? Okay, let's do that. All right, Miss Nico, we've got a gift from you. This is from your First Baptist family. It's a Lego set, but it's not just any Lego set. Here, let's get that microphone real fast. T tell us what it is, Miss Nico. Here, I'll hold it up. This is a Vespa, which is a, a light blue scooter. And I actually have one just like that, but bigger for me to ride. That's right. So when you guys see this, maybe in her office, you'll also see this in the parking lot because that's what she drives, okay? So I hope this helps you guys see what a fun, amazing lady we're getting. And, and awesome. I also want you guys to know that, that where she's coming from, the church where she was, they're really sad. 
Kind of like we were sad when Miss Faye left. They're so sad because they had such a gem and such a wonderful minister of the gospel in her. And so it was wonderful because as I talked to some of their people that they got to work with, the pastor there and all that, they said, you are getting one of the best children's ministers I've ever had the joy of working with. So these are some of our kids. This is Miss Nicole. And Miss Nicole, can you point out real quick where your family is in the room? Yes. And maybe introduce them for us. Absolutely. So I have over here, y'all kind of wave so they can see where you're at. I have five kids of my own. They're grown from 23 all the way down to 10. Titus is on the stage, right, Titus? Can you wave your hand? Everybody see is. Titus? Um, and so Alex, Josiah, Victoria, Mackenzie, and Titus, they're my kids, and my husband, Alan, is over there. And we are so excited to be coming to First Baptist and to serve along with all the families because we all know that children's ministry is really family ministry, walking alongside you as your kids grow so fast into becoming young adults and teaching them to love the Lord and love his word. Amen. Well, what we want to do, we want to pray because we have prayed, Nicole, we have prayed for you, for God's provision for you. And so we want to pray for you now as you begin in these relationships. It was so beautiful to see her yesterday in the fellowship hall, going around and interacting with our families and meeting our children and just engaging them in conversation. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a beautiful start and it's going to be a beautiful tenure of ministry here at First Baptist. So we want to pray for you and in that work. And guys, I want to pray for you guys because you're the future of First Baptist New Orleans. I hope that many of you grow up to stay in New Orleans and to be the future leaders of this church. So I'm so grateful for y'all. Let's pray together, okay? God, we thank you so much for Miss Nico. We thank you so much for Miss Kimberly, God. We, say, we are so grateful for the team that you have assembled here. And so now we pray for Miss Nico as she begins a new season of ministry at First Baptist New Orleans. We're so thankful for her and Alan and their five amazing children. We pray, Father, that you would bless their church, their family and this church family, Father, as we grow in our understanding of your word, as we become servants to you, the Lord, and we begin to lead others in knowing you, the living God. So Father, thank you for each one of these amazing kids up here. I pray that they would be blessed through Miss Nicole and through her ministry, but also through their parents, God, that you would bless their families, God, and that, that these children would grow up to be men and women who walk with you, who love you, and who make you known, and, and some of whom, God, we, we trust will be future leaders of this church and in our city, Father. So we thank you, we trust you, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, you can return to your seats. Miss Felicia, thank you so much. I am so grateful to the personnel committee and all that they have done to walk with me during this season of transition. So thank you so much, Felicia. Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Sadie. Always encouraging. Well, trust me when I say how excited I am for God's provision. I, I, it's just amazing to see God's timing. Uh, to see his provision of, of a person and then to know that it's all because of his incredible love um, for his glory among all nations, his desire to, to, to have us just center everything about our lives around his son um, and because he wants to help, he wants us to be equipped for the work of ministry. He wants you as parents to be equipped for the task of discipling your own children. And so just trust that this is all part of God's work in you, but it's not to stop with us. It's not to, to just kind of um, become kind of a, a cul-de-sac of, 
of great godly influence here. Instead, it is to go out into New Orleans and all nations. So, so do be in prayer, be, be encouraging. Well, this morning, I wanna invite you to open in God's word to Philippians chapter two. And we are walking through um, a, a look at God's word in Philippians chapter two, in, in all of Philippians. And today we turn the corner after coming out of a passage that really focused on Christ and his humility, his humbling himself and becoming obedient to death, even, even death on a cross, and then God exalting him and giving him the name above every name that, that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's where we've been. And so now in this moment, I wanna invite you to stand for the reading of God's word as we pick up after coming just out of chapter two, verses six through 11. Now we turn the corner into verses 12 through 18. And so hear the word of the Lord as God speaks to to you, his people. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless and a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Father, I pray this morning that through the preaching of your word, the love of your people would be kindled and intensified for you, the living God. That our love for your son would become greater than it was when we arrived this morning. And our love for the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives and our desperation for the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives would increase today, all because you have spoken to us by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. The title for today's message from this passage is this, prove it, prove it. You're taking notes today, the message title is this, prove it. You see, I think that's the essence of what Paul is driving at here, is he has communicated the greatness of Jesus Christ and how Christ has been exalted and given the name that is above every name, and that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess, he's identifying that we've already bowed our knee and we've already confessed with our tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so then he pivots out of this supreme look at Jesus Christ and he says, prove it. Prove the confession that you make with your mouth. Prove that the posture of you kneeling before him and saying Jesus is Lord is real. And he gives us some real handlebars to hold on to in order to do that, to know the scope, the boundaries of where that is to lie. And listen, it comes a lot closer to home than you want it to. You see, most of us want the prove it to be, I go to church on Sundays. We, we want the prove it to be, I give money to charities and to churches. We want the prove it to be, well, I don't do really bad things like rape or murder or steal or, or lie a lot on my taxes or something like that. I'm a pretty good person. I prove it in that way. But that's not how God is inviting you and I to prove it today. 
Instead, he moves right into the inner part of your life and my life in dealing with several aspects of how we live. And so let's turn into his word today and consider what all is being spoken. I want to remind you that a major theme that I see throughout the book of of Philippians, this letter to the church in Philippi, is humility. Joy is certainly a theme that we see developed as well, but humility just seems to be on the surface at every corner that I see. And this passage is no different. Paul is again encouraging them toward a humble proof, a, a, a humility in how they live before the Lord. And we see it as soon as we turn to this passage. Therefore, my dear friends, hear Paul this way. He's speaking to you saying, beloved, He's speaking to the church in Philippi, but because we know this is not just Paul writing to a church, but God speaking to all of his people in all of time, hear the message of love that is being encouraged here. This isn't one who's judgmental. We all know that person, right? You've been in a small group, and there's always sometimes that person that always just seems to kind of think they're a little better than everybody else in the room, and they just kind of condescend, or they find a way to take anything and begin to twist it and make you look bad. This isn't that. This isn't Paul just saying, you know, to them, hey, you know, like, I don't see any proof in your life. I don't don't think you're the real deal. He's not trying to belittle them. He is leaning in a posture of love and support and saying, there is going to be proof in your life. And so I wanna encourage you toward that all the more because that's the good life. That's the full life. That's the life that God intends for us in Christ Jesus is what I'm describing here. So know that, receive this in love because some of it may be uncomfortable but sometimes the most loving things are, right? When, when a boss that you have and you know loves you, and so he says, I need to say something hard today. That that's actually one of the greatest acts of love or service that that supervisor or boss may ever give you is to tell you, you do this in this way and it's not okay. But it's hard to receive that sort of criticism and love. But Paul here is speaking and he says, just as you have always obeyed. Now, I don't know about you, I read that and I think, well, I must not, you know, this part isn't to me. You know, like I can be very honest very quickly about I haven't always obeyed. But he's speaking to them in this very charitable way. He's like, I know that the position of your heart, the intention of your heart is to obey. And to that degree, I can say, yes, I do have a heart that desires to obey. And do you wanna know why? because God has changed my heart. And do you wanna know why there is in you a desire to obey his word? It's because God has changed your heart. You have a new heart in Christ Jesus, a heart that does desire, that does desire to obey his word and to do acts of righteousness like described in this passage. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, it's real important as we turn into verse 12 right here to understand this. When he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, it is an imperative. He's telling the church, work out your own salvation. And if we're not careful, we might can begin to to tweak the meaning of this verse to say that he's saying, save yourself. Pull up yourself by the bootstraps and, and you do it. You save yourselves. You be good enough. You be holy enough, and God will save you. That's not what he's saying here. 
And the reason we know it is because of the tension that is held with verse 13. Because he goes right into, for it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So there's this tension. Paul is telling us, work out. And he's using plural here. So we individualize this. I'm just thinking about my salvation, Chad Gilbert. But he's saying, y'all work out your salvation. So do you want to know how you're going to work out your salvation? Not in isolation. It's going to be in community. It's, that's part of the prereq for what does it mean to work out my salvation is to be in community. If you're in isolation, and I want to speak a message to those that are maybe watching from home for whatever reason, whether today you're sick or, or maybe COVID or other respiratory illnesses have you, you know, maybe sitting back for a minute, those things can be understandable. But if you have settled into an existence where you say church is something I watch once a week, I want to encourage you from the word that you need spiritual community that cannot take place by watching a screen. We all, we all know this, that, that there's something that, that doesn't happen by just interacting with others through a screen, but certainly, certainly by just watching a service, that's going to leave you lacking. So we provide this because we know that there are some of you that are homebound, some of you that are immune compromised, some of you that are sick, but if you have settled into just watching church, you are not going to be able to work out your salvation in the way that Paul is communicating in the way that God intends for you. So I encourage you to overcome that barrier and to come and to be in the fellowship if you can. But for those that are home, know that we are thinking about you and praying for you this morning in your illness, in your situation, and we're thankful for you. So we continue in God's word and he holds this tension saying, work out your own salvation, but notice with fear and trembling. And then this acknowledgement, for it is God who is working both to will and to work according to his good purpose. He's acknowledging the reason why you ought to be active in working out your own salvation, but with fear and trembling is because it's God's work. You're God's work. And that fits perfectly with what we see over in Ephesians chapter two, for you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared ahead of time for you to do. God's working on you. You see, the way that I wanted to set up the distinction is this. At my house, when maybe Brogan has been working on a Lego creation and then someone is tempted to come and to mess it up, another sibling, there's not a whole lot on the line there. It's, you know, you're basically just gonna have a mad Brogan for a little bit if you like mess up the creation or do something like that, but you'll build another one, right? Very different when you and I take our children into a context where a masterful artist or a masterful tradesman is working on something and we're coming into proximity to a work in progress and we are saying, careful, careful. That, that's, you have no idea how valuable that is. Like, don't touch, be very careful. Listen, stay close to me. Be very mindful. This is something that we can't, we can't mess up. This is, this is a work of art. This is something. Now, why do we say that? Is it because the wood is so precious? Is it because the stone is so precious? Is it because the canvas is so precious? Or is it because of the one who works on it? I submit to you today that the reason we hold certain things in the highest esteem is because of who worked on it. Who worked on it? I recently saw the movie Monument Men. 
story of soldiers in World War II that were tasked with helping preserve art, historic art throughout Europe that was being taken by Nazi Germany and being put in different places and hidden basically so that Hitler could have his own huge Louvre, if you will. It would have been just his for his private consumption as well as for Germany to be where all art came together. And so all of these things, they were commissioned. But you want to know what made those pieces precious? It was the artist. It was the artist. It wasn't the stone. It wasn't the wood. It wasn't the canvas. It was the artist. And can I tell you one greater than any artist you and I can name is working on you, working on each one of you. You are his work. He is crafting you masterfully. And so there ought to be your own perspective of yourself that I am something. I might feel like just a lump of clay. I might feel like I've still got a heart of stone. I might feel as dull as wood. But there is a master craftsman who is constantly whittling and shaping and chiseling on you. And therefore, there ought to be that same respect for one another. To say that's one who's a work of art in progress. And so there ought to be this fear and trembling about what God is doing in my own life. That this is something precious to him. He gave the blood of his own son in order to sanctify this. And to take this lump of clay and to begin to mold it and to use it for his purposes. I should respect that I am no longer my own but belong to him. And he's working on me. And then when I look at you, it ought to change everything. You see, we prove we are his by taking caution. That's how I would sum up verses 12 and 13 is by taking caution. Caution with the way that we tend to our own souls and caution in the way that we tend to one another. There ought to be a reverence. There ought to be a high respect for what God is doing in and among and through and in each one of us. So let's elevate the caution with which we approach one another. Let's elevate the care, let's elevate the respect because he is working. Second, prove you are his with your mouth. Prove you are his with your mouth. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling and arguing. That word grumbling literally means an utterance made in a low tone of voice. Ever done that? Somebody told you to do something, and then you, you're walking away, and under your breath, it's, you know, like, and, 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 and you know what you're saying. You know what the, the heart is behind that. Another translation is behind-the-scenes talk. You going to do this? Yep, I'm going to do that. Turn. Man, can you believe you asked me to do that? What a moron. God is concerned He's working on you and I with what's coming out of our mouth. And that comes close to home for every one of us. Each one of us have a public manifestation of how we talk. Then we also have the at-home edition. We have the, 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 the public way that we deal with criticism, and then we have the at-home edition of how we deal with criticism. We have the the public way that we deal with an instructive or a rebuke or any of those kind of things, and then we have the at-home edition. And God is concerned about both. He's concerned about both. He wants for there to be consistency, not hypocrisy. 
in the way that you are. But listen, this is where we meet our match, right? I mean, James talks about how, how difficult the tongue is. He, he talks about how bizarre it is, essentially, that out of this one mouth comes fresh water and salt water. That there comes, you know, like both good and evil. There comes fire and water. I mean, like, how does this make sense? And he says it ought not be. It shouldn't be the case that there's two things coming out of this mouth, this tongue. And so he starts with the simplicity of this, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Now, listen, think about it. He's speaking to the church and the church gathered. He's speaking about how we deal with things. And listen, I recognize that for First Baptist New Orleans, the last several years have been a time of a tremendous transition. You, you said goodbye to a faithful pastor in 2018 who retired after a faithful ministry and who remains a friend who I was at the table with for several hours on Wednesday this week. So grateful for him. But that is a transition for a church after you've had a pastor for over 20 years. You've been a church to go through transition of people coming and going, people moving, people maybe deciding to go to another church in town for whatever reason over these last five years. It's been a time of transition. Staff, we've had to say goodbye to people like Christy Gibson and Ricky Draper and Faye Scott over this last year and a half and welcome in new staff. It's been a time of transition. And then a new senior pastor in the last couple of years to come in. It's been a lot. And listen, this is an encouragement more to me maybe than anyone else. This was God, you know, preaching to me through his word this week. Do everything without arguing and grumbling. I need that reminder too. Because I realize that for you it's difficult when you go through transitions. It can be hard. You may not understand the why behind the certain what is done. But I encourage you, just as I am taking to heart the same message, do everything without arguing and grumbling. So let us be a church that proves that we are his by the work of his Holy Spirit as he's working on us even when it's behind the scenes. Number three, prove you're his with your morals. Verses 15 and 16, he says, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding out the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run, that I didn't run or labor for nothing. Let's walk through this and understand how he's wanting us to understand the significance of our morals. Listen to this description in verse 15, so that you may be blameless and pure. I mean, I, I think that that is a description that any one of us would welcome, blameless and pure. And then listen to the contrast, as opposed to those who are crooked and perverted. I don't know anyone that enjoys, some people are okay sometimes when you're like, man, you're pretty direct. Man, you're pretty, you know, harsh. You know? And some people are like, I actually kind of like that about myself. You know, I kind of like that I, I have this little bit of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of an edge, you know, that gives me maybe an advantage. But I don't know a single human being who says, you know, you're kind of perverted. And they're like, I like that about myself. I haven't met that person. I hope I never do. It's one of those descriptions that we say, mm, you know, I don't want that. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be perverted? Well, I mean, consider something that's not, has no moral value, like a window. A window. 
a, a moral use of a window is to keep it clean so that it allows light into whatever room you're in, and it allows you to clearly see the outside world. But when you pervert the use of a window, then you use it to peer in or to look on other people like a creeper, peering in, a peeping Tom, in order to look on people for your own personal gain, your own personal satisfaction. A perverted use of a window is something that we experience every time at night when the room is lit and you can't see out. You see, I mean, it's glass. You're supposed to be able to see through it, but there's something about what happens about glass when you're in a lit room and it's dark outside that you can't see out. And it changes the use of the glass. But the, but the window was amoral. And it had no morals to it. It was all about who was using it. Think about that. That a window is just a window. A computer is just a computer. A cell phone is just a cell phone. A position of authority is just a position of authority. And you and I can either with every one of those objects and every one of those positions and every one of those influences be blameless and pure or like it was in the first century in their generation, so it is in ours today, we can use every one of those things in a perverted and crooked way. We can change and use them for things that really we ought not to use them for. But does that mean that a cell phone is bad? Does that mean that a computer is wicked? Does that mean that a window is bad? Does that mean that a car is bad? Does that mean that a position of authority is bad? Some of us has bought into that lie. A lot of people in the fight to turn, you know, they've, they've smashed a cell phone. They've crushed a computer. They've, they've given up something, they stopped something, and they almost treat it like that was the problem when this is the problem. This is what God is working on, is what we do in this heart. And he is inviting you and I into an existence where our morals come into conformity to his word. You see, he's wanting us to shine like stars in the world. You see, that was David Crosby's phrase that you would shine like stars in the universe. Do you guys remember that? You remember how he constantly encouraged you in that direction? It comes from this passage, to shine like stars in the universe. But Paul doesn't stop with just a basic shining. He tells you explicitly how you are to shine, what a moral life is to look like. And then this is where then all of a sudden it wraps back in with your tongue as well. He's saying, if you really want to pursue the moral life, both with your mouth and your morals, your way of life, then do this. Hold out, hold firm and hold out the word of life. Look how he says it, by holding firm to the word of life. And that idea of holding firm can also be this idea of holding out. I think it's both. It's both you're holding on to it tightly, but not in the sense of keeping it from others, but of holding it firmly to hold it out to someone in need. Holding out the word of life. Brothers and sisters, that is what our city needs. Cover the paper today is the crisis that we're in because of murders. We're on track to have a historic high of murders. It impacts all sorts of things. As I read about the, the race dynamic of that, it was careful to note that in our city right now, one out of every 15 black males 
at the current murder rate will be dead by 35. One out of every 15 black males. We cannot be okay with that. And you say, well, Chad, why are you bringing out that aspect? It's to help bring into focus those who are at most at risk. It's to help us see where are the greatest needs in our city. Please hear me. I'm not trying to get on some political agenda. And every time I bring up race, I realize that that does a certain thing for each one of us. For some, it causes us to say, yes, we need to be talking about these things. For others, it says, yeah, you're blaming race on everything and and it's the reason for everything. Listen, brothers and sisters, we cannot be so afraid to talk about these things that we don't. And that we just go on as though everything is okay. Because we all know that in our city, it's not. Things aren't okay. And so what do we do? You and I uniquely are called in our city to hold firm and hold out the word of life. That's what you and I are called to do. Because when the word of life meets a stony, hard heart of any man, woman, boy, or girl, he changes them and begins to give them new life. Does that fix everything in a moment? No, there are, there are the need to move in closely to those walking through all sorts of things, whether it's educational limits, whether it's, 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 it's generational trauma that's taking place in a family. There's all of these things, and we're doing that. We're partnering with agencies like Crossroads NOLA. We're partnering with other ministries in our city, like New Orleans Mission, in order to, to deal with the different aspects of the issues. But for you and I, we cannot lose this. That for you and I to shine is to hold forth and hold out and hold firm to the word of life. Let us not settle into it that we just shine morally from a distance, like some distant star. That when people look at us, they say, man, well, he's bright. She's bright. But no, what they come to understand is the only thing that shines in us is Christ. The only thing that shines in us is Christ. Christ is the hero. Christ is the savior. Christ is the king. That's what shines in us, not me, but Christ within me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And he ought to be shining brighter and brighter and brighter. And I ought to be proclaiming him more and more and more. And so Paul then can conclude in this way, then I can boast in the day of Christ Jesus that I didn't run or labor for nothing. In other words, he's banking on it that he didn't waste his time with them just getting that treasure of the gospel and then burying it in a field. No, they put it to work. They invested it. They began to distribute it widely because freely they receive, so freely they give. And then that brings them to this, to this mindset, this mindset of humility that really begins to invade us when we really get our focus right. Verse 17 But even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. You see, that aspect of being poured out as a drink offering, nobody remembers that part. That's not the part of the sacrificial system that people really got celebrating, that really took the focus. It wasn't the aspect, even through all of the rituals and everything that went through, that was like, man, that's the focal point. No, the focal point was the sacrifice. Many times, like you think about the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice of the lamb. 
the lamb that would be sacrificed and would atone for the sins of all the people and the blood of it would be sprinkled. Nobody remembered the drink offering. Nobody remembered the liquid used that day. That wasn't what was remembered. And Paul is saying, even if my act of service, my service to you, and then, and then as a ripple effect, your service to one another, that you ought to have the same attitude that even if you aren't remembered, even if you are quickly forgotten, as long as your service resulted in this sort of change, working out their salvation with fear and trembling, doing everything without arguing and complaining, not being crooked and twisted, being, being faultless children of God, blameless and pure, holding firm to the word of life. He says, as long as those sorts of things are present, then if I'm not remembered at all, I'm fine with that and I rejoice and I'm glad. And then he says, in the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. You see, we are those who prove that we're his by what we celebrate as well. What do we celebrate? Do we celebrate, do we celebrate that we just aren't like other people? Or do we celebrate the power of the one who changed us to be able to change others? You see, do we celebrate at this time of year just really family? Family is a gift, we're so thankful for it. Or do we celebrate the reality that God gave his one and only son so that we could come into his family, his adopted children, as we read today? Are we those who celebrate when a brother or sister strives valiantly in order to resist sin and remain faithful to Christ Jesus? When they resist moments to grumble and, and backbite, I mean, or, or, or you know, bite each other with their words? Or are we those that, that kind of celebrate when somebody finally takes a stand and sticks it to someone? I mean, what kind of people are we and what are we celebrating? And Paul says, be, be glad and rejoice with me. And so if we're gonna join him in his celebration, it's going to be over the things like this where there is a witnessing to the fact that God is at work in you and I. Brothers and sisters, we need one another. And we are called to prove that we are his in these ways by taking caution, by proving we are his with our mouth, by proving that we are his with our morals and how God has changed us, and then by proving that we are his by what we celebrate. But brothers and sisters, apart from the work of his Holy Spirit, we won't do any of it. But praise be to God what it says back in verse 13, for God is working. That's my only hope is that he who started a work on me won't give up. He will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That's my only hope, is that the master craftsman isn't done with this lump of clay yet. And he's not done with this group of people yet. He's not done with us yet, First Baptist New Orleans. He is forming and shaping us in order to be poured out before him a drink offering on the sacrificial service of the faith of others. We're doing this in order to hold out the word of life in our city because our city needs it. I don't know the statistic of the 300 that have died over the last year of whether they knew the Lord or not, but I imagine that many of them died without hope. They died without a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so brothers and sisters, you and I have work to do in our city.
It's a real work. It's a life-changing work. It's an eternal work. And so let us humble ourselves in this Christmas season and get to work and prove that we are his. Father, I pray in this moment that our hearts would be humbled before you. Lord, I'm thankful how your word confronts us and it shapes us. And that the call of your word is to prove that we're yours. But Lord, the proof that I'm yours is not in what I do for you, but what you are doing on me. God, when I consider how weak I am and how, how weak we collectively are, but yet to then see your power at work, you get the glory. And so, Lord, I pray that more and more in our city, as we look at statistics and we look at, at, at crime patterns, Lord, that we would be those who humble ourselves before you. And we would not grumble and complain about it, but, Lord, we would humble ourselves before you and we would pursue shining like stars in the universe by holding forth the word of life so that we, too, won't run or labor in vain but we'll be able to celebrate the advancement of faith in our city. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.